Chapter 5 Futures Strategies and Derivatives At its simplest, a successful futures trading strategy doesn't need to be any more complicated than correctly anticipating the bullish or bearish movement of a market and making a corresponding purchase or sale. To keep the math simple, let's say I had just sold two soybean futures contracts, representative of 10,000 bushels of soybeans. In the time it has taken me to write this paragraph, the soybean market has just dropped two cents. I would have just made $200, and all for doing nothing but sitting around for two minutes. I didn't create any economic value for the world. All I really did was guess an outcome correctly. Ideally, I would have had a good reason for shorting the soybean market and would have been trading rather than guessing. Either way, experienced traders will tell you the exit of a futures trade is just as important as the entry. Should I take the money and run, or should I wait and see what happens next? At what level of profit will my self-discipline spur me to offset the trade? More importantly, at what level of loss will I abandon the trade to prevent continued losses and live to fight another day? Doubling down on each loss may work, eventually, at a blackjack table, but it's a surefire recipe for bankruptcy in a leveraged futures account. How you choose to select your entry points and target profit levels or loss limit levels, along with your selection of tools to keep that discipline, will be the hallmarks of your own personal trading system. Whether you choose to use technical analysis fundamental market news, phases of the moon, or rolls of the dice to guide your system is beyond the purview of this chapter. Rather, it's meant to be a guide to the trading tools available. The strategy involved in executing a simple long or short trade in grain futures isn't very complex. Define your goals and limits. Perhaps you've analyzed that November soybeans currently trading at $14 per bushel are overvalued in relation to corn and theoretically could drop $2 per bushel to reestablish a historical norm. But you're not willing to risk more than $500 on this trading idea. You could short the soybean market with a target of taking profits when the price reaches $12 and an intention to limit your losses if the price rises to $14.10. Enter the position. Sell a November soybean futures contract at $14. You can set up your goals and limits to be automatically executed using a good-till-canceled limit buy order at $12. The order to buy at that lower level won't be executed until the market reaches that level and you can use a GTC buy stop order at $14.10. Exit the position. Once the market hits either $12 or $14.10, your short position will be offset by one or the other of your good-till-canceled buy orders. You'll either be $10,000 richer or $500 poorer, although there's no telling how long it will take for either outcome to materialize. Remember to cancel the other unfilled limit order or stop order. 
There's no law requiring you to bracket your position with automatic exit points, but it's often easier for a trader to stay disciplined about his goals and limits with those orders in place. He could, of course, just sell the $14 beans and tell himself, well, I'll just see how this goes. He could wake up a few days later and discover the market rallied 70 cents overnight while he was sleeping. That would be bad. Alternatively, soybean prices could move lower and lower, and weeks could go by with increasing levels of profit in his trading account, and he could keep thinking, hmm, maybe I should just take this profit, only to watch it all vanish after a few moments of indecision. Stop orders are particularly important, in my opinion, for limiting losses, but they can also be useful to lock in profits. Trailing stops can be placed just over or under a market's current level to prevent a profitable position from backsliding. There are no commission costs associated with stop orders until they are filled, so feel free to move them around as the market changes. Without using any instruments more sophisticated than long and short futures positions, there's another trading strategy that allows you to profit from your analysis of the grain markets. A spread trade is a form of pure arbitrage. It involves one short position that is simultaneously offset by a long position in the same market. However, what is meant by in the same market can vary. Buying March corn while simultaneously selling May corn is a spread trade. So is buying Minneapolis wheat futures while simultaneously selling KC wheat futures. So is buying palm oil traded on the Chicago Futures Exchange while simultaneously selling palm oil futures in Malaysia. It can get more abstract than that. Buying corn and selling soybeans is a spread trade because even though those two trades may not seem like they're in the same market, in fact they are closely related by some of the same customers, like animal feeders, and the same producers, farmers. The beauty of a spread trade is its theoretically lower risk of loss. As one price level rises or falls, the price level of any other asset in that same market should also theoretically rise or fall to roughly the same degree. If the whole market goes up, for instance, you will lose money on the short position half of your spread trade, but you will simultaneously make money on the long position half of the trade. The trick, of course, is to make relatively more money than you lose. To do that, you don't really need to know what direction the entire market will take. You can be market neutral. But you need to accurately predict how the spread between the two assets will change. March and May corn futures could go from being five cents apart to being ten cents apart if the predicted supply of spring corn increases, for instance. Demand for high protein spring wheat could become much stronger than the demand for hard red winter wheat, and the spread between Minneapolis and Kansas City wheat futures could correspondingly widen. Maybe you identified an inefficient price difference between U.S. and Malaysian palm oil futures that can't be entirely explained away by currency differences. A spread trade arbitrage would take advantage of any of those observations. Trading crush margins is a very specific type of spread trading. 
These are the hedges that actual ag processors use to lock in the gross processing margins between buying raw materials and selling processed materials. Ag companies can use the spreads between futures contracts as a proxy for their business margins, but speculators are also free to use those spreads to anticipate how the industry may grow more or less profitable over time. The classic example is the soybean crush. That's one bushel of soybeans, 60 pounds, which yields about 44 pounds of soybean meal, 11 pounds of soybean oil, four pounds of hulls, and one pound of waste. These numbers are subject to change as the protein level of the beans and meal changes, and also subject to the processing plant's idiosyncrasies. In the futures markets, A soybean processor can lock in upcoming profit margins by buying 10 soybean futures contracts and simultaneously selling 11 soybean meal futures contracts and 9 soybean oil futures contracts. A speculative trader could either do that if he felt the crush margin was likely to narrow or do the opposite sell soybean futures and buy byproduct futures if he felt the crush margin was likely to grow wider, that is, more profitable over time. The necessary ratios of meal and oil contracts to soybean contracts can change as the actual results of soybean processing or extrusion changes. Other crush margins in the ag industry include the ethanol crush, That's one bushel of corn, which yields about 2.8 gallons of ethanol and 18 pounds of dried distiller's grain, which is also subject to change as the milling and fermenting technology evolves. The futures spread trade would be 10 corn futures contracts on one side, long or short, and one ethanol futures contract on the other side, short or long. Similarly, one bushel of soybeans produces about 1.5 gallons of biodiesel, but trading that crush margin with heating oil futures, for instance, isn't very common because it's not a perfect hedge for biodiesel. Another spread trade is the cattle crush, which is a reflection of the profitability of feeding young animals for market. It would involve buying one feeder cattle futures contract, let's say an October contract, And simultaneously buying one deferred corn contract, let's say a December contract, as well as simultaneously selling two live cattle futures contracts about six months out, let's say April contracts, or vice versa. And the ratios of inputs, feeder cattle and feed, versus product, live cattle, can change as your estimate for how much feed it takes to produce a pound of beef changes. Sometimes it's done as three corn and four feeder contracts against eight live cattle contracts. Outside of the grain and agriculture world, there are other crush spreads like the crack spread that hedges two crude oil futures contracts against one gasoline and one heating oil contract. These are all examples of intermarket spread trades. Spreads that have one side in one market and the other side in one or more slightly different markets. As spread trades go, these offer both considerable risk and considerable potential reward because two or more different futures markets can't always be expected to move in the same direction at the same time. 
thereby removing some of the assurance that as one side of the spread position loses value, the other side will gain an equivalent amount. The other great charm of spread trading, margin credits, is correspondingly more variable for intermarket spreads than for intramarket spreads. Intramarket spread trades have both their sides all within one market. For instance, spreading July corn futures against December corn futures. These trades can also be called calendar spreads, and here's where the margin benefit really starts to add up. Because the futures exchanges are aware that some markets tend to move up or down together, especially the markets for any two months of the same commodity, they believe there is relatively less risk of loss in trading those spreads, and subsequently require relatively less upfront margin deposit for spread trades. For instance, if the exchange would require $5,000 initial margin to trade two corn futures contracts in the same direction, that's $2,500 each, it may only require $200 initial margin to buy one corn contract and simultaneously sell a different corn contract. They will require slightly more if the two contracts don't represent corn in the same marketing year, but it is still quite a benefit. Don't let it lure you into a false sense of security about spread trading, however. It's certainly possible for two contracts to move in different directions, even within the same commodity market. In 2011, 2012, and 2013, when the supplies of old crop corn started to become scarce in the spring and summer, it wasn't uncommon to see the nearby futures contracts, like July, trade higher by 10 or 20 cents on the same days as the new crop contracts like December were moving lower because the market anticipated bearish production in the upcoming year. If someone had entered a bull spread trade, that's buying a nearby month and selling a deferred month, he would have received a nice profit as that unusual situation developed. But if someone had entered a bear spread trade, that's selling a nearby month and buying a deferred month, it wouldn't have taken very long to blow through the tiny initial margin requirement and start losing serious money. There is no guarantee that spread trading is less risky than outright long or short positions. Between grain contracts within the same marketing year, however, spreads are theoretically limited by a fundamental relationship, the cost of carry. Remember that the full cost of commercial carry is how much someone would have to spend to store grain for a certain period of time, inclusive of physical costs, the leases, labor, grain shrink loss, etc., and the interest cost of deferring income. The true cost changes over time and depends on the underlying value of the grain and therefore needs to be calculated anew any time you use it as the justification for a spread trade. But for simplicity's sake, let's say we made those calculations and today the cost to carry one bushel of corn for one month is seven cents. The market may offer to reimburse owners of corn any proportion of that cost, anywhere from 0% to 100%. If the March corn contract is priced higher or equal to the May contract, which would be unusual, 
there would be no economic benefit to carrying that corn forward for two months. More typically, if the March contract was ten cents cheaper than the May contract, then there would be some motivation to store the grain, and we would say the extra ten cents of deferred income represents seventy-one percent of the full cost of commercial carry. That's ten cents divided by fourteen cents, which is the product of two months times the seven cents per month. The crucial thing to understand is that the market should never offer more than one hundred percent of full commercial carry. Commercial grain companies could rack up giant risk-free profits if they could deliver grain two months out for more than it would cost them to store it. Arbitrage would keep that from happening because market participants would exert selling pressure against any irrationally wide carry spread. If you ever calculate the carry spread between two grain futures contracts in the same marketing year to be more than 100% of the full cost of commercial carry, something is funky. It's probably that your calculation of commercial carry costs are off from what the big grain companies are actually assuming their costs to be. Otherwise, they'd be arbitraging the heck out of that spread. That's why, in a market with carry structure, a bull spread trade has theoretically limited risk. If you buy a nearby contract and sell a deferred contract in the same marketing year. Your best case scenario would be for the two contracts' prices to move closer together. That is, for the spread between those two contracts to narrow. That is, for the carry to weaken. You would want the price of the nearby contract to rise relatively more or fall relatively less than the price of the deferred contract, because that is how you would see one winning half of your spread trade earn more profit than the losing half of the spread trade. It doesn't matter if the whole grain market goes up or down, just as long as the two contracts move in the same direction, but with one earning slightly more profit than the other. Of course, you're not likely to earn very big profits in these calendar spread trades, which tend not to move more than a few cents per week, unless you trade very large volumes. But a small potential reward can still be attractive when you consider that there is limited risk in a bull spread trade in a grain market. The worst thing that could happen to your position would be the spread widening, that is, carry strengthening. And remember, a carry spread can only grow so wide to 100% of full commercial carrying costs. Then arbitrage will rein it in. Consequently, if you enter the bull spread trade between March and May corn when there is ten cents of carry between the two contracts and full commercial carry is estimated at fourteen cents, you might feel confident you won't ever lose more than four cents per bushel on that trade. On the other hand, there is unlimited theoretical risk of loss in a bear spread trade in the grain markets. Consider selling March corn futures and buying May corn futures when there is a ten cent carry spread between them. The best you could hope on that trade would be for the spread to widen to fourteen cents, a four cent profit. But if the opposite occurred, if May corn prices started to fall relatively faster than March corn prices, or if March corn prices started to rise relatively faster than May corn prices. 
you could lose more than just the ten cents it would take to make the two contracts equivalent in price. If nearby supplies are very scarce, the market could potentially adopt an inverted structure, and there is no theoretical limit to how much higher March corn could be priced than May corn. At the time of this writing, the largest inverted spread between the nearby corn contract and the second month contract was negative one hundred sixty-six and a half cents between the May and July contracts on July eleventh, two thousand thirteen. To anyone who went long on that spread at ten cents, that would have been a loss of a dollar seventy-six and a half per bushel. The people who have the best instincts for calendar spread trading in the grain markets are also the people who have access to the best information on commercial grain inventories and costs of carry. That is, grain companies and merchandisers themselves, because they earn profit by storing grain and capturing carry from one month to the next, and because they must choose which months to buy or sell millions of bushels of grain. Or to enter or exit millions of bushels of futures hedges, you can imagine that minuscule changes to those calendar spreads can alter their profits. Carry in the futures markets gets a lot of attention on cash grain trading floors, and commercial grain merchandisers are the best spread traders there are. However, spreads aren't the only way that futures and their derivatives affect merchandisers' strategies. Merchandiser strategies. First, I would just like to reiterate that futures speculation is wildly inappropriate for merchandisers, basis traders. Merchandisers obviously have access to the futures markets to make hedges against their physical grain purchases and sales, and if nobody was watching a bored merchandiser's computer screen on a quiet afternoon, he theoretically could spend his time making little two hundred dollar day trades. But that would be the surest way for that merchandiser to get fired, tick off a customer, or make a bad basis trade, and he could probably be rehabilitated. Start using the company's money to speculate in futures, he would be out the door faster than you could say stop order. Commercial grain companies base their entire operations on the known and manageable risks of basis trading. That's just what they do. But allowing exposure to the futures movement or flat price movement of grain would put their trading capital at vastly increased risk. There's a reason why hedge funds often blow out within a few years, but the ADMs and bungies of the world have over a century of successful trading under their belts. As far as I know, this logic successfully permeates the minds of virtually all new merchandisers. I don't personally know any merchandiser who ever engaged company money in futures speculation outright, but I've read about a few in the newspapers. Even so, there can be unintentional exposure to the volatile futures markets. Let's say Jason wrote a forward cash contract with Gary Green to buy November corn at five dollars and zero cents, or thirty cents under the December, because that was the Mungus Elevators posted basis bid. And at the time, Gary asked for a flat price quote. December futures were trading at exactly five dollars and thirty cents. When Jason and Gary hang up the phone, Jason has committed the Mungus Grain Company to buy ten thousand bushels of physical corn at five dollars per bushel. To lay off that long price risk, Jason will need to sell two December corn futures contracts. But 
Let's say Jason is hungry, and the futures market has been quiet all morning. So he gets up from his desk, stretches a little, then goes to the elevator's break room to snack on some rhubarb coffee cake that one of the scale operators had brought in that day. He saunters back to his desk and figures he better make that futures hedge, only to discover corn futures have nosedived ten cents in the few minutes he postponed the hedge sale. The market had gotten wind of increased estimates for Argentinian corn production, or something. So now Jason has to sell five dollar and twenty cent futures against a five dollar cash purchase, which has effectively ruined his otherwise perfectly routine thirty under the dece trade. Now it's a twenty under the dece trade, a ten cent per bushel loss in the accounting of his forward grain position. He may have some flexibility on his position statement regarding whether he wants to show that loss as a bad basis purchase, twenty under the dece in a thirty under the dece market, or whether he wants to show it as a futures loss. But either way, Jason's trip to the rhubarb coffee cake just cost the Mungus Grain Company one thousand dollars. That's the ten cents times ten thousand bushels. This is what is called futures slippage. And it emphasizes the importance of timely discipline for anyone in the futures market, even if the futures movement itself isn't what you are intending to trade. So the only futures strategy a merchandiser will need is just to get his hedges made in a timely manner, instantaneously, if at all possible. On the other hand, there are a few different types of merchandising contracts. Which allow some flexibility for the farmer and the merchandiser to select futures and flat prices. Flat price contracts. These are the contracts we've been discussing all throughout this book so far. A buyer and a seller simultaneously agree on the present futures level and a basis level, and wrap all that information together in the flat price level of the grain being traded. The buyer knows exactly how much cash money he will pay per bushel of grain, and the seller knows exactly how much he will receive, plus or minus quality premiums or discounts. Basis only contracts. A cash grain contract may also be written with only the basis level negotiated between the buyer and the seller. Because merchandisers make their profits exclusively by trading basis. And are mostly indifferent to the flat prices or underlying futures prices of their trades. This is a perfectly agreeable type of contract for them, particularly if two fully hedged commercial grain companies are trading between themselves. For instance, a co-op selling some spring grain to a terminal elevator. All their accounting of the market value of the trade will be done according to the basis level itself. And there is no particular reason to attach a futures level to the trade, until the time comes to actually transfer ownership of the grain. These can also be called unpriced contracts. The NGFA has rules about giving the buyer the option of when to set the underlying futures price, and thus the overall flat price of any basis-only contract, and they are required to do so before anybody actually ships the grain. Hedge to arrive, HTA contracts. Because basis levels have a seasonal pattern, 
a farmer may feel conflicted about selling grain too far in advance. In March, for instance, his elevator may be bidding a $5 flat price for grain in the upcoming harvest time frame. That's October, November. But the $5 could be a reflection of $5.70 December futures and a 70 under the December basis. If a farmer is concerned about the futures market tumbling lower than $5.70, he may be motivated to sell. But if he feels the basis bid is likely to be stronger than $0.70 cents under the December contract someday, what can he do? Fortunately, most elevators and commercial grain companies allow farmers to forward sell grain by setting a futures price on a contract and leaving the basis unset. They do this because they know they can make a profit margin handling as many bushels of grain as they can originate and paying their posted basis whenever, even if it's not at the weakest level of the year. Once one of these hedge-to-arrive contracts is made between a farmer and a buyer, that farmer has committed his bushels to the buyer and can't put those same bushels out on the open market to a competitor. So grain buyers use HTAs as an origination tool to lock in some captive bushels. They also tend to charge a fee for the service. I've seen anything from $0.03 cents to $0.10, cents, ostensibly to cover their margin costs and the risks of holding a futures hedge on behalf of the farmer. At the more punitive levels, HTA fees may discourage the use of these contracts. The farmer has to believe the basis level itself will strengthen $0.10 cents or more before he gives up $0.10 cents of fees on an HTA contract. The grain buyer and the farmer may also agree to roll the futures hedge forward, for instance, from the December contract to the March contract. If the farmer would like to delay delivery past the original time frame of the contract, but this too usually triggers some fee, and it can start to increase the risk of the contract. In the mid-1990s, when use of HTA contracts was relatively new, many elevators and farmers agreed to roll their HTA contracts from one crop year, 1995, to the next, 1996. However, that was one of those years when the nearby old crop market, July 95 futures, was wildly inverted over the deferred new crop market, December 96 futures. So when rolling those HTA contracts to a new delivery time frame, farmers got hit with a loss on the inverted futures spread as wide as $1.88. That was the spread's widest level on July 9, 1996. This, as you can imagine, left a very sour taste in the mouth of many farmers who to this day greatly distrust HTA contracts. Investigations were made, studies were run, the topic has been well covered. And the takeaway for anyone who intends to trade grain with HTAs is this. There will always be basis risk in an HTA contract. Leaving basis unsettled is the contract's very purpose. As long as the delivery period is never rolled over to a different futures contract, basis risk and counterparty risk are the only risks. But once you start allowing the futures hedge to be rolled forward, there is new price risk, the risk of the spread itself changing between those two futures contracts. 
Within any one crop year, the carry structure will typically limit that to a fairly small, manageable risk. Between any two crop years, however, there is nothing inherently stopping the future spreads from getting wild. Therefore, many HTA contracts written today will have explicit terms preventing them from being rolled out of one crop year and into the next. Deferred pricing. DP contracts, also called delayed price or price later contracts, these allow a farmer to deliver grain to a buyer and transfer title of that grain to the buyer, without actually setting a price on the grain, presumably because the farmer believes the price will be higher later. Grain can also just be delivered and kept on storage at the buyer's facility without transferring title. But then the buyer will typically start charging rather severe storage charges. One way or another, the grain buyer will get reimbursed for storing the grain, either by capturing the carry in the markets, which requires it to own and account for the ownership of those bushels on its grain position, or by collecting equivalent storage fees from the grain's owner. So rather than charging their farmer clients five or six cents per month of storage costs while they wait for the futures prices to theoretically move up, some elevators offer free DP programs. This allows the elevator to record ownership of the bushels on their basis position, and to legally do whatever they want with the grain: sell it on a train, process it through an ethanol plant, etc., without actually writing a check for the grain. Until the farmer decides he likes the prevailing price, it's a gamble for the farmer. Remember that prices could very possibly move lower after he delivers the grain, and it's not always free. But it's a quite popular way to market grain, especially if a farmer doesn't have enough storage capacity to handle all his own bushels. In addition to setting the basis level or the futures level at independent times. There are other strategies merchandisers can use to develop contracts that attract farmer bushels. Let's lump them all together as designer contracts, taken to mean any grain contract used to originate bushels by offering more flexible pricing terms than simply giving a flat price or basis bid. Some of these may include accumulator contracts, premium offer contracts, or pro pricing contracts. But different marketing phrases from different grain companies and continual innovation in these designer contracts prevent me from being able to write an accurate, all-inclusive list at any one point in time. The publicity scheme goes something like this: A grain originator might say to a farmer, "Joe, my price today for new crop corn is five dollars, but if you'd like to do a special contract with me." I can get you five dollars and twenty cents per bushel on up to ten thousand bushels. We'll just price one hundred bushels per day for one hundred days, as long as the market stays above a certain level, and then average it all together. So, if you like the price today but don't want to miss out on some higher moves, this will average out your sales over the next six months at an even better price. To the extent that the description really might tie in with Joe's grain marketing goals. It probably sounds pretty good, but don't think the grain companies are just doing this for the delight and benefit of their farmer customers. The real reason for these contracts' existence is to attract as many bushels as possible. 
It's partly a neat service to farmers that attracts some bushels away from a grain company's competitors, but it can also be a strategy to source higher and higher volumes of grain. Particularly in the case of those accumulator contracts, sometimes these tools can commit farmers to selling more grain than they fully understand they're selling, or more than they would otherwise be willing to sell as the market conditions change. And how do the grain companies manage to offer futures prices twenty cents above the market price anyway? What black magic is going on behind the scenes for those designer contracts? In a word, options. Options strategies. There are two types of options contracts: puts and calls. And here's the standard description of options: a put option gives its owner the right, but not the obligation, to sell an asset at a certain strike price if, at a certain time. The market's price is lower than that strike price. A call option gives its owner the right, but not the obligation, to buy an asset at a certain strike price if, at a certain time, the market's price is higher than that strike price. That sounds awfully nice. You get to sell stuff for more than it's currently worth, or you get to buy stuff for less than its prevailing market price. Neat. America's founding fathers wrote of certain unalienable rights, inherent rights that are automatically ours simply because of our status as human beings. The rights attached to owning options aren't unalienable, and they most certainly are not free. They must be paid for, and how. An option contract is just like any other traded contract. There is a buyer and there is a seller. In order to have those rights of buying or selling at a strike price, you must purchase them. Now the question becomes: How much should that privilege be worth to you? Let's say you see the December corn futures contract is worth five dollars and fifty cents per bushel now, but you think its price will fall. And it will only be worth five dollars per bushel on November twenty-third. That's the day that December corn options expire. You could buy a December put option with any strike price, but let's say you pick a five dollar and fifty cent strike. If your prediction comes true and the underlying futures contract really is valued at five dollars and zero cents on the put's expiration date. You would have the right to sell five-dollar corn for five dollars and fifty cents per bushel. The intrinsic value of that put option would be worth fifty cents per bushel to you, or twenty-five hundred dollars, since options trade in five-thousand bushel increments like futures. That scenario alone starts to illustrate why options are notoriously hard to understand and tricky to trade. Just as futures contracts are derivatives of the underlying cash grain market—that is, they represent grain, and their price is derived from the price of the underlying grain—but they're really just financial contracts. They're not grain. A similar relationship exists between options contracts and futures contracts. Options are derivatives of an underlying futures market, so they're actually derivatives of derivatives.
They are exchange-traded and regulated and brokered just like futures contracts, but an option contract is a separate beast from a futures contract. Its performance will ultimately be determined by the price of the underlying futures contract, which is influenced by the price of the underlying grain market. But the market of buyers and sellers for any particular option contract is separate from the market for the underlying futures contract or the market for the underlying grain. With that philosophical and mechanical distinction in mind, now we can begin to think about all the reasons why the math will never be as easy as that $5.50 December put example. The buyer of that put option should only be willing to spend 50 cents on the contract if she's 100% certain that the underlying futures price at expiration will be exactly $5.00. And how can anyone ever be certain of any such thing? In reality, she might feel there's a 33% chance the futures price will be above $5.50, which means her put would be worthless and a 33% chance that the futures price will be $5.25, in which case her put would have 25 cents of intrinsic value, and a 33% chance that the futures price will be $5.00, that's the 50 cent value scenario. Given those potential outcomes, the predicted value of owning a $5.50 put option would only be 25 cents. But it's never that simple. There's actually an infinite number of outcomes, and no way to attach simple probabilities to any of them. The whole structure of pricing options is based on the potential values of the entire range of uncertain outcomes. It's helpful to think of options like insurance policies. You know one outcome may never happen. Your house may never burn down or December corn may never fall below $5.50 before expiration. You also know there are several things that could happen which could negatively affect your finances. A house fire could result in a little smoke damage, or the loss of your garage, or the total loss of your house and all your belongings. A falling corn market could result in reduced revenue for a farmer. Maybe just a few cents less than she could receive now, maybe 10% less than the current price, maybe 50% less than the current price, or anywhere above or below the current price, all the way down to $0 per bushel. In order to get a home insurance policy, which is a contract that will pay out some financial reimbursement in those unpleasant scenarios, the buyer must pay a price up front, known as premium. With option contracts, the language is the same. A buyer pays premium up front, then may ultimately receive a payout under certain conditions. The seller receives that premium up front and either gets to keep all of it if those conditions never occur, or must financially reimburse the buyer if they do. To communicate which scenario an option contract is actually in, we say it is, quote, in the money if the underlying market price is lower than the strike price of a put option or higher than the strike price of a call option. The owner of that option would get to buy the underlying asset cheaper or sell it higher than the prevailing market would otherwise allow. Options are, quote, at the money 
for those rare fleeting moments when the market is trading at exactly the same level as the strike price. And options are, quote, out of the money. If the underlying market price is higher than the strike price of a put option or lower than the strike price of a call option, no financial benefit would come to the options owner by selling at a strike price which is lower than the prevailing market or buying at a strike price that is higher than the prevailing market. Owners of out-of-the-money options aren't obligated to exercise those options, so they're not forced to sell or buy at unprofitable levels, and instead they just forfeit the premium they paid for the options and can let them expire worthless. From that description and all that metaphorical insurance premium talk, you may see that these contracts are great for hedging risks. Grain producers who really need to cover their financial risks if grain prices fall, or end users who really need to cover their risks if grain prices rise, are the ideal purchasers of puts and calls, respectively. They are, in fact, the very people for whom these instruments were invented and built up into a liquid exchange-traded market. But here's the thing about options. Each contract isn't a static agreement between two parties the insured, and the insurer. Rather, it's just one piece of an actively traded market, so the value of its premium is always changing from one moment to the next as all of the uncertain factors that went into its calculation keep changing. You probably can't call up your car insurance company and sell back the entire insurance policy you bought from them, although maybe they will prorate the remaining days on the policy for you. With options on the futures markets, however, it's totally possible to get into and out of contracts easily in a liquid market, and as you do so, the premium value of the options themselves may change. Options are eminently tradable. It's entirely possible to buy or sell an option and make a profit from changes to that option's premium, even if the option itself remains out of the money. For instance, let's say the December corn futures contract is currently trading at $5.25. You could buy an out-of-the-money $5 put option for $0.30. Cents. The only way you would ever exercise that put option and receive intrinsic value for it would be if the December corn contract traded below $5 sometime between now and the end of November when the December options expire. However, let's say five days from now, the December futures contract has fallen to $5.05. Your put would still be out of the money, but because the underlying asset price fell, other people are going to be relatively more eager to buy puts with a $5 strike price. The premium price of your put could have risen to $0.40. Cents. If you wanted to, you could turn around and exit the put option for a $0.10 cent profit on the premium appreciation. Of course, that premium movement means that it is also possible to buy an option and lose money on the premium, even if the option contract itself is in the money. If the December corn contract is trading at $5.25, you could buy a call option with a $5 strike price, and even though there is only $0.25 cents of intrinsic value between $5.25 and $5, the going price for Dees $5 calls 
might be as high as $0.60 cents of premium. In five days' time, the premium value could fall to $0.50, cents, perhaps if the rest of the market feels corn prices are growing less volatile. If you exited by selling your long call then, you would book a $0.10 cent loss, even though your call option was in the money the whole time. And if you simply held your long call all the way to expiration, even if the call expired in the money, you might never recover the full $0.60 cents of premium you paid at the outset of the trade. The December futures contract would have to be at $5.60 or higher when the options expire in order for the intrinsic value of your long $5 call to be higher than the premium you paid. All that upfront premium can get chewed through in four main ways. The first influence on premium is the underlying asset's price. Consider that there are just five distinct corn futures contracts, March, May, July, September, and December, traded each marketing year to represent the entire continuum of the cash corn market's price at every second of every day of that year. Similarly, options on futures get broken down into a chain of discrete strike prices, all of which are somewhere above or below the ever-changing futures market price. A segment of the options chain for all the corn options that are derivative of the September futures contract, if it was trading at $5.25 per bushel, could be put into a table, and the full chain of far-out-of-the-money and deep-in-the-money options would actually stretch several dollars above and below the current market level. The table might show August options on the September corn contract expiring July 27th with a list of calls and puts. Calls with a $5 strike price might have a premium price of $0.44, cents, with a 510 strike at $0.38, cents, a 520 strike at $0.32, cents, a 530 strike at $0.28, cents, and a 540 strike at $0.24. Cents. Puts with a strike price of $5 might have a premium price of $0.18. Cents. A 510 strike price may have a premium of $0.23, cents, and so on. Simultaneously, September options on the September corn contract, which don't expire until August 24th, might have a similar table of calls and puts. Calls with a $5 strike price might have a premium price of $0.49, cents, and puts with a $5 strike price might have a premium price of $0.23, cents, and so on. If you choose to trade a September call option that is $0.20 cents out of the money today, at the 540 strike price, for instance, the market for that contract will only include the buyers and sellers for that particular option at that particular strike price for that particular expiration and that particular underlying futures contract. The buyers and sellers of September 540 calls make up one discrete bunch of trading interest, different than the trading interest for September $5 calls or August 540 calls or August $5 puts. In a few months' time, if September futures fall 20 cents, your position will still be in a September 540 call specifically, and that contract will just have gone to 40 cents out of the money instead of 20 cents. Its price will be different than it is on today's options chain. 
If the underlying asset price fell 20 cents, the premium on that call might fall 10 cents. If for every cent the underlying asset changes, the premium on the call changes half as much in the same direction, we would say that call has a delta of positive 0.5. Delta is one of the Greeks. Symbols used in options mathematics to represent how option values change with regard to certain factors. A less cutesy name for them would be risk sensitivities. Even less cute than that, delta is formally the mathematical derivative of the value of the option itself with respect to the underlying instrument's price. Delta equals dv over dp. Don't get too hung up on the calculus. Delta is just a way to express how much premium will change as the underlying market changes. If you see one day that September 540 calls have a delta of positive 0.47, don't assume that the delta will remain constant as the market progresses. As options get farther out of the money, the delta itself starts to wane. So the farther away an option is from developing intrinsic value, the less value its premium will gain even as the underlying market moves in the right direction for the option. Other factors that affect how options values behave are volatility, measured by vega, time, measured by theta, and the risk-free interest rate, measured by rho. The more volatile a market is, the higher the option premiums will be. Think of volatility as something that increases the likelihoods of all the potential in-the-money payout scenarios. Also, the more time there is between today and an option's expiration, the more chances that option will have to eventually move in the money or deeper in the money, which is why time sensitivity, theta, is such a big part of option trading. Even if nothing else changes about an underlying market, even if the price stays the same from one day to the next, Still, the premium of any option will experience time value decay every moment of every day as that option gets closer to expiration. Anyone who buys an option and later exits that option may receive back some of the premium he initially paid, and he may even make a profit if the value of the option has increased. But the time value portion of that premium will never be fully recoverable. Sensitivity to the interest rate is generally negligible, especially in low interest rate environments. But in a full mathematical model of options value, it should be included because it represents the opportunity cost of not using that money in some other safer investment. Options traders who model how values change according to all these various factors can use even more complex Greeks measures of mathematical derivatives of mathematical derivatives. And mastering all those Greeks can be the path to some excellent arbitrage strategies. If the present market price of an option is above or below what an option trader's model calculates it should be, he can sell or buy that option to bring it back in line with rational expectations. Options trading is extremely well-suited for algorithmic trading, because there can be direct benefits to building better and better algorithms that do a better and better job of predicting options values. 
the most well-known mathematical model for options valuation is the Black-Scholes equation. But if everyone in the market is using that equation to price options, and meanwhile you can develop a slightly better algorithm to predict how prices will behave, arbitrage trades from your algorithm will win profits. Bear in mind that options arbitrageurs are as willing to sell options as they are to buy them. Options selling, also known as options writing, can be a great strategy to bring income into your trading account. Back to the insurance metaphor. Options writers are the insurance companies who receive monthly premium checks, not the poor schmucks writing those checks and driving around trying not to run into anything. If you can confidently identify an outcome you feel sure won't happen, let's say you don't think December corn futures will ever rise above $7 per bushel, then you can sell options against that outcome and earn all the premium. Even if December $7 corn calls are only worth $0.02, you could sell as many calls as market participants are willing to buy, and as long as the underlying price of December corn futures really never does rise above $7 before the calls expire, you would get to keep all that money. Of course, you can lose massive amounts of money writing options. If the outcome you're predicting against does in fact come true, you will be on the hook to pay out the eventual value of the option at expiration. You can exit the position before expiration, but it might still be at a loss compared to where you sold the premium. Because selling a put or a call effectively makes you liable for an eventual long futures position or short futures position, the exchange requires upfront margin for short option positions. Traders who only buy options only need to pay the premium upfront and will never lose more than that premium. They will never experience a margin call. Traders who write options can definitely find themselves on margin call. Let's discuss how long puts, long calls, short puts, and short calls can be used to express market opinion. A trader can do any one of these things or a combination of these things to profit from her opinion. In the futures market, if you're bullish, you can buy futures and profit as the market rises or lose as the market falls. If you're bearish, you can sell futures and profit as the market falls or lose as the market rises. With put options, if you're bullish about the underlying market, you can sell puts and profit as the underlying market rises, or potentially suffer losses equivalent to a long futures position if the market falls below the strike price. If you're bearish about the underlying market, you can buy puts and profit as the underlying market falls. You could potentially lose the premium, but only the premium, if the market never falls below the strike price. Using call options. If you're bullish about the underlying market, you can buy calls and profit as the underlying market rises. You could potentially lose the premium you paid, but only the premium, if the market never rises above the strike price. If you're bearish about the underlying market, you can sell calls and profit as the underlying market falls. 
or potentially suffer losses equivalent to a short futures position if the market rises above the strike price. In my opinion, the two ways a trader can get into trouble with options are one, oversimplifying them in your mind. This can result in alarmingly sudden losses in your trading account without a ready explanation. And two, overcomplicating them in your mind. This tends to result in completely dismissing options trading as a ripoff. And that's a shame because there are some very nice strategies for options, but they should only be used with a full understanding of all those underlying causes for premium movement. Like trading futures, trading options doesn't need to be any more complicated than buying an instrument if you think its premium value is likely to increase or selling an instrument if you think its value is likely to decrease. You even use all the same trading software and order types when making trades, market orders, limit orders, stop orders, etc. But one of the real advantages of options trading is all the spread trading opportunities that are opened up by instruments which trade not only for different time frames, but also at different strike prices or with different functions, for instance a put versus a call. Options can be spread against each other or against futures contracts or against a position in the physical market, but a spread trade is still a spread trade. You want the underlying value of the two sides of the spread to move in roughly the same direction at the same time, and your goal is to have one side of the trade profit relatively more than the other side of the trade simultaneously loses. Most options strategies are just spread trades which time and tradition have happened to assign fancy, vaguely sexual-sounding names. For instance, naked puts or calls. These are options trades that stand alone with nothing spread against them. Someone who simply buys a put will therefore own a, quote, naked put, and only risk the upfront premium it took to buy the position. Someone who simply sells a call is said to have sold a, quote, naked call, and has unlimited theoretical risk if the underlying asset price moves above the strike price toward infinity. Then there are protective puts or calls. These are the risk management strategies. If you own an asset, let's say 5,000 bushels of physical grain or one long futures contract, you could purchase a put option to effectively spread against that asset. If you are short an asset, you could buy a call to spread against that asset. If the price of the asset falls, the premium value of the put will increase. So these are very basic hedge spread trades. Then there are covered puts or calls. For the traders who sell or write put or call options, if they spread a long underlying asset against their short options position, that's considered covering their options. So if you write a call for November soybeans, you could make it into a spread trade by simultaneously going long November soybean futures. If your short call goes in the money and you start to rack up losses on that side of the trade, your profits from the long futures position will cover you. Then there are call spreads or put spreads. These are perhaps easier to visualize. Just like a futures spread trade where you buy March corn and simultaneously sell May corn, 
an options spread trade doesn't need to be any more complicated than buying a March $5 corn put and simultaneously selling a March $4.50 corn put. Calculating your expected payoff from such a trade can start to get complex. If March futures fall to $4.75, you'll be in the money on the March $5 put, but accumulating losses on the short out-of-the-money put position. And you can design these spreads to cross any number of market boundaries. Obviously, you can spread different strike prices against each other, but calendar spreads are also possible. A September wheat put could be spread against a December wheat put. Meanwhile, a long Minneapolis wheat call against a short Kansas City wheat call would be an intermarket call spread. With options, your spreads can be diagonal across every possible parameter. For instance, a short March $5 corn call against a long May $12.50 soybean call. There are also put-call spreads. You can also spread the two different option types against each other. A specific example of a put-call spread is a collar. Let's say you buy a December $5 corn put option and sell a December $6 call option. Sometimes these spread trades can be thought of as a way to finance a risk management strategy, or at least to make it more affordable. The December $5 put might cost $0.35 cents of premium, but selling the December $6 call might earn the seller $0.15 cents of premium. The net premium cost of the put-call spread would therefore only be $0.20. Cents. The trader would still have all the profit potential, or all the risk management, if the underlying December corn futures fall below $5 per bushel. On the other hand, if corn futures rise above $6 per bushel, the trader would face unlimited risk in his trading account, although if he's a farmer hedger, those losses will be offset by receiving a higher cash price for his physical grain. That should illustrate the importance of evaluating all the possible scenarios for any options spread trade and predicting how each side's delta and time value and total premium might change in each scenario. Then there are straddles. Some options strategies, like straddles, are market neutral. A trader may not even care about or have an opinion about what direction a market will take, but if he believes the volatility of the market is likely to increase, he can profit from that influence alone, from volatility alone, by trading an options straddle. He would simultaneously buy a put and buy a call at the same strike price, in the same market, with the same expiration date. His profit will come as the volatility portion of the premiums increase, and one side of his spread trade will profit relatively more than the other side, although he's indifferent which side it is. Then there are strangles. A strangle involves buying both a put option and a call option in the same market with the same expiration date, but the options would have two different strike prices, both of them out of the money. That is, the put's strike price would be below the market's current value, and the call's strike price would be above the market's current value. Because the trader is long in options, his maximum theoretical loss is the premium value spent on the trade, which could be significant. 
His profit would come if the market experiences a large jump in one direction. Although again, the trader is neutral about which direction that might be. Then there are butterfly spreads. A butterfly spread incorporates several of the ideas of the more basic options spread trades into one big buy-winged trade. It involves selling two options, puts or calls, at one strike price, while simultaneously buying one of the same type of option at a lower strike price, and buying another of the same type of option at a higher strike price. So it is both a long put or call spread and a short put or call spread, all at the same time, which means you finance a lot of the premium cost. But there is only a small sweet spot where the trade will be profitable. A trader can express his bullishness or bearishness for the market by designing a butterfly spread to have a sweet spot above or below the current market level. Finally, there's a thing called the iron condor. This strategy involves buying a put at one strike price and selling a put at a higher strike price, while simultaneously selling a call at an even higher strike price and buying a call at a strike price yet higher than that. So think of it as a simultaneously put spread and call spread, or as two simultaneous strangles. Again, it's a strategy with four positions and therefore four different premium values to keep track of in any scenario. With the two short positions financing the premium cost of the two long positions, and which only has a certain sweet spot where it will be profitable. Now you may have a feel for how complex and creative options strategies can be. Twists can be placed on any of these strategies by adjusting how far apart or how symmetrical the strike prices or expirations in the spread may be, and the many variations get their own fun names: fig leaves. Skip strike butterflies, Christmas tree butterflies, double diagonals, etc. I would only caution that you not undertake any of these strategies without first fully understanding how they are likely to perform in any market scenario. How much do they cost up front? What is the best case scenario for this trade, and how likely do you think that will be to happen? What is the worst case scenario for this trade and its likelihood? Ideally, you might even build a simulation spreadsheet to show the potential payoffs and costs, and do rigorous backtesting of the strategy given real historical market performances. All of which is just my way of saying, please don't consider reading the past few pages as a full qualification for undertaking the more complex option strategies. They should, however, give you a starting point to understand what your broker is talking about. Or to start investigating these strategies more deeply.